Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. I'm here today with Lucas Zucker, who is Policy and Communications Director for CAUSE, the Central Coast Alliance United for a Sustainable Economy. And this is going to be a really cool conversation. I'm super excited to talk to Lucas because he's been on the front lines of so many important issues that have been happening in Ventura County and Santa Barbara County. And so we're going to dive into all of them. Lucas, how are you doing today? Great. Thanks, Josh. It's, uh, it's good to be here. Cool. Um, let's talk a little bit about CAUSE and what you do. I know that CAUSE is really impactful in Ventura and Santa Barbara counties. Why don't you sort of give an overview to the audience about what CAUSE's work is and what you focus on? Absolutely. Uh, CAUSE is a, a community organization that works to advance social, economic, and environmental justice in the, in the Central Coast. And we've got uh, five chapters throughout the, the region and uh, Oxnard, Ventura, Santa Paula, Santa Barbara, and Santa Maria, um, and work on a, a really broad range of issues from uh, affordable housing to uh, farm worker and other labor rights, uh, environmental justice and health issues, uh, immigrants' rights issues, and really see those those issues all as um, you know, intersecting and, and impacting working class and immigrant communities uh, here in the Central Coast. And so, um, so we do community organizing, and so really our our strength is is working at the grassroots with the folks who are directly impacted by those issues, um, whether that be the, the immigration system or, um, you know, or struggling with housing as, as renters, um, you know, work in agriculture or domestic work, um, and and really believing that the solutions to those issues lie in uplifting the leadership of the folks who are most impacted. And so that the people who are, are kind of closer to the pain of some of these problems in our in our society and in our local community um, are the ones really who have the solution and whose, whose voice needs to be heard. And so we work to develop leadership and, and um, you know, uh, organize folks to, um, you know, choose choose campaigns at the, the local level that um, that they want to work in to, to improve their community and, and address some of those those problems. Um, and so for, for me, I'm, I'm our uh, policy and communications director. And so, you know, I, I, I see my role often to be, be a bridge between folks who are, you know, marginalized from the political system um, to be able to access policymaking, um, you know, communicate with uh, public decision makers about the, the issues that are, that are facing them. Let's talk about what's going on in, in Santa Barbara. There's been a exodus of Latino families, Hispanic families who've moved out of Santa Barbara in recent years. And I'm wondering if you could talk about the factors for that. I know we're talking about housing costs going up, the rental market uh, tightening, new development that's happening. Can you talk a little bit about the factors that are making it increasingly difficult for working class and Latino families to be able to uh, continue to live in Santa Barbara? I know you've done a lot of work on this topic. Right. Yeah, there's there's been a, uh, a major decline in Latino population in Santa Barbara in recent years. Um, you know, the, the census data that, that we've put together shows that since since 2011, that's been about nine nine thousand residents and uh, over over 20% of the Latino population from its peak. Um, you know, of course, there's a there's a margin of error in those statistics, but I think the um, the reality is undeniable that that um, thousands of uh, Latino residents have left the city um, just in the last few years, um, and certainly uh, that's that's related to 
the the issue that's of course a hot button issue in cities across the United States and uh, you know across the world of, of gentrification, um, and particularly um, communities of color being kind of pushed out by uh, rising rents, uh, by evictions, and in communities that that often um, you know for for many years might have been you know kind of racially stigmatized or seen as not desirable, and and in recent years have kind of you know seen this this boom in demand um, for for certain neighborhoods. And I think, you know, Santa Barbara's east side, west side, these kind of longtime Latino enclaves um, really fit the profile of of communities that are being gentrified across uh, across the country. You know, they're they're close to an urban core, they're walkable, they have, you know, great access to arts and culture and all of the things that um, you know, the diverse communities that have lived there have made um, you know, those those communities uh, such amazing places. Um, a lot of that is now kind of being pushed out as you see kind of larger corporate um, real estate investors uh, coming into those neighborhoods and and buying uh, whole apartment buildings often and, and you know dramatically increasing rents or carrying out you know uh, significant evictions um, and often kind of kind of flipping or rebranding these buildings um, to you know, appeal to kind of, you know, maybe young professional tech workers or, you know, in the, in the case of um, sometimes on the, on the west side of Santa Barbara, um, Santa Barbara City College students. Um, uh, but but what we're seeing and, and, you know, anecdotally, I think anyone who who lives in the region has has heard stories of, of this from, you know, from people they know of a lot of working class and um, Latino and immigrant families moving from Santa Barbara to nearby cities like Ventura, Oxnard, uh, Lompoc, Santa Maria, um, where, where housing is a little more affordable. Many continue to commute into the city to, um, mm -hmm. to work or, um, you know, or to, you know, be part of their social ties, maybe even, you know, where their kids go to school still, um, but are, are really feeling that displacement and the, and the disruption on their lives and, and the disruption of those communities. What do we do to sort of get around that? I mean, to some degree, and you hear this as an argument, they say, well, you know, the East Side has been like this for a long time and everything needs to improve. We need to change. We need to bring things up to the times. You hear sort of that argument where, where some people see it as gentrification and other people see it as fixing up an area how how does your group how does your organization work to sort of keep latino families and preserve a neighborhood and ward off gentrification what are you doing on the ground to sort of counter that movement absolutely and a, and a lot of it comes to to tenant protections right um and and creating stability in the in the housing market i think you know it's a it's a sad reality of the the housing market that we have in this in this country and in this largely in this world and that often, you know, improvements that have been needed in a, in a neighborhood forever, people go, hey, we, we've been, you know, asking for some basic things, fixing up our parks, you know, improving our, our sidewalks and our roads um, for a long time. And we only see those things start to happen when our community shifts from a, a, a community of color to a majority white community and affluent residents are coming in. And then all of a sudden we see, you know, these, these improvements, these, you know, reinvestments, right? Um, and, and unfortunately, because, you know, the vast majority of us live in private market housing um when an improvement is made down the block we see the land values in that whole neighborhood go up and and you know um if you're not a homeowner your 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 rents go up right um and and santa barbara interestingly actually has uh 
one of the highest, if not, um, you know, actually I've, I've seen by, by some measure, the, the single highest in the state um, disparity, uh, racial disparity in homeownership between white and Latino residents. Um, mm. 52% of, of white households in Santa Barbara own their homes and only 22% of Latino households own their homes. Mm. Um, and so, so what happens if you have a neighborhood like, you know, um, like the Mesa or, or, you know, San Roque, you know, uh, you know, Riviera, where, where the vast majority of people own their homes, you know, improve They're they're saying, yes, we want our land values to go up, right? We, we want, you know, this asset that we have to become more expensive. Um, so that we own a more expensive investment, um, you know, in a community like the West side of Santa Barbara, where, uh, the, the vast majority of residents are renters, rising land values means increased rent, uh, the, the very people who live there that might have, you know, um, you know, might have hoped to benefit from, you know, neighborhood reinvestment actually getting pushed out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think there's this there's this big difference between homeowners and renters sometimes a, a divide, uh, you know, a political divide and kind of what gentrification means, uh, you know, in in their community. And so so a lot of it for us comes down to tenant protections. Right. Um, so Santa Barbara. Um, especially as a city that is majority renters and, you know, 60% of, of Santa Barbara residents are renters. Um, people might not always realize that because that's not necessarily who shows up at city council meetings and who's most, you know, politically vocal, but, but that's certainly the vast majority of the, of the city's population. Um, uh, you know, for, for those renters and, and, you know, in a, in a city like Santa Barbara, there's virtually no tenant protections in the city beyond what the state has. Um, you know, whereas if we were in a more urban area like, you know, Los Angeles, the Bay Area, you know, um, you know, cities, I think that that are similar to to Santa Barbara, right? Like um, like Santa Monica, um, you know, uh, that that have had, you know, strong kind of, uh, you know, rent stabilization measures, uh, you know, eviction protections for a very long time. Um, you know, when when you see kind of gentrification nearby, at least for for a, a local family, you've got a you got some measure of shelter in the storm, right? Um, you yeah. know that even even if uh, when you move out, your landlord might be able to you know snap uh, you know your your building's rent up to up to a much higher market rate. At least while you're there, you know your rent is is kind of protected from from going up you know more more than you can handle every every month. I mean, you've got some protection of you know you can only be evicted you know, for a fair reason, like you're actually, you know, damaging the property or disturbing other tenants. Um, and so Santa Barbara really doesn't doesn't have have any of that and, and actually really has been debating uh, eviction protections for at least five years now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as this housing crisis raged on without really fully being able to actually take any action. You know, I, I wonder if you could address this point because you know, I talked to, obviously, as a reporter, got to talk to everybody with multiple perspectives on this issue and you hear a lot of commercial property owners residential property owners talk about santa barbara always being expensive that because of its location because we're right here near the ocean we have all of this all these factors that make everybody in the world want to live here and so to some degree they they will say there's only a certain amount of controls you can put over uh, people and property owners to make sure that everybody can live here. Can you sort of address this point, this argument that, hey, Santa Barbara is expensive and 
it's it's not meant for everybody. Not everybody can live here. And so when you can't afford to live in a community, then maybe you should look for another community to live in. And that's a harsh perspective that some people have. Can you address that? And there's there's truth in that. You know, historically, I mean, since since the late 1800s, when the um, you know, when the city kind of went from from Mexican Santa Barbara to, you know, a, a United States Santa Barbara, um, you know, it was kind of marketed at this as this health resort where um, wealthy people from across the country could move and, you you know, enjoy the beautiful climate and, and weather and, it'll, you know, restore your health. And and, you know, there's been kind of this this boosterism to make it a place for exclusive tourism and, and you know, exclusive real estate. Um, and I and I would say that's that's always been true that Santa Barbara's kind of been on the leading edge of expensive cities in California. Um, you know, California, uh, you know, as a whole has gotten much more expensive and Santa Barbara has gotten even more expensive. And, and I think that that trend um, has certainly, uh, you know, uh, moved at a rapid pace in recent years. Um, I think, you know, although Santa Barbara's always been expensive, there there have been times when it was significantly more affordable, you know, and, you know, for, for folks who have been around the city, uh, you know, a long time. I mean, Santa, Santa Barbara once had a black community that doesn't exist anymore, essentially, right? I mean, not not in, at least not in kind of a black neighborhood, right? Uh, since yeah. certainly there are, there are black folks living in Santa Barbara, um, you know, but that was pushed out by by gentrification and kind of you know, um, you know, along that that Haley Street corridor where <laughs> where Cause's office is now, and, and you can you can see you know how kind of it's it's become a, a little bit of a kind of a, a hipster <laughs> you know area, yeah. right? Um, but I think the, the here's the fundamental contradiction there is that despite the fact that Santa Barbara has always been this this kind of exclusive community with this you know very affluent um, you know presence of, of both residents and tourists that's always depended on the work of low wage immigrant workers from the very beginning I mean from from when those you know 1800s those workers were were you know often Chinese workers or you know um, to to now you know probably Latino immigrants. Um, you know, you can't have luxury hotels without somebody cleaning those hotels. You can't have these, you know, expensive restaurants, uh, you know, without the folks who are are working in the back, washing dishes, you know, cooking those meals. Um, you know, the the vast majority of the the houses in in Montecito and the Riviera uh, employ domestic workers. Um, you know, gardeners, landscapers, you know, housekeepers, caregivers, um, and and those workers are often invisibilized, right? Um, you know, even in the, the way that we structure, you know, our hotels and restaurants and things that are, that are made to not see the people, quote, in the back of the house, right? Um, yeah. But it's such a large population, such a large workforce, um, and it becomes visible times like the, you know, when we're in crisis, right? Um, during COVID-19, during, a, you know, a, a wildfire and mudslide, where all of a sudden you see, oh, whoa, there's thousands of workers in our community who are out of work, um, and are excluded from the safety net because their immigration status and are, are really in need of, of support. Um, and so I would say that, you know, no exclusive or, or wealthy or, you know, kind of tourist community um, really anywhere in the United States exists without having a, a large uh, population of, of low income, usually people of color, um, you know, somewhere there. And so the, the question is, how do you how do you create at least, um, you know, pockets of affordability where folks can live? Um, you know, the solution some might have will be fine. Well, they can they can live in Oxnard, they can live in Santa Maria, and they can they can drive in an hour. You know, but but those people will then complain about traffic. Those people will then complain <laughs> about you know 
uh, carbon emissions, right, from yeah. from that commuting. So um, you, you can't really have it both ways. And certainly, you know, um, for folks who are, you know, working long hours, you know, doing manual labor, those those long commutes, um, you know, are are really difficult on, um, you know, on a family. And, and I would say that that people should have the right to live where they work, right? Um, that the folks who contribute to the the strong economy of a community like Santa Barbara and really without without their work, you know, this <laughs> this community wouldn't be able to exist as it as it does. Should should have access to the you know world class schools in Santa Barbara, to the you know world class green spaces and you know and, and um, you know kind of environmental resources here. Um, you know the the great public transit system you know in fact in in many ways it's you know it's better for um for working class and low-income families to be able to have access to some of the things like a great community college a great you know public transit system that that don't exist as much in in um you know uh some of the other cities in our in our region um and so that displacement is is really worse for everyone where can you, uh, from what you can tell, the the people who've left Santa Barbara, where are they going? Are they going to the communities that you had uh, mentioned? Are they, are they moving to Oxnard and Lompoc and Santa Maria? Or are we seeing people just leave the area altogether? So it's both. And I would say kind of initially, yeah, a lot of folks moving to some of the more affordable cities in the region and continuing to kind of commute in. Um, you know, or maybe not commute in, but but um, but yeah, live nearby and be able to be close to. I mean, I think for for most folks, you want to be near your family ties. You know, you might go to a church in Santa Barbara. You might have family there. You might, um, you know, you might still want your kids to be able to see their friends, right? Um, and so, you know, maybe more desirable to commute into from Ventura or Lompoc. Um, uh, you know, and and you know, thousands of people do, right? Um, but I think as we've seen. Uh, you know this housing crisis really become global um even communities that were that were once affordable like ventura and oxnard um you know even even santa maria um are becoming expensive too um and and so we you know and you, you can see that in our um in our report uh, housing crisis 805 which really takes a regional look um and you can see how much rents are rising in, in some of these other cities as well um, and so we're starting to see more and more of you know which i don't think we saw um, you know, maybe 10 years ago uh, from our grassroots base of people, you know, leaving the state entirely, moving to Nevada, you know, Oregon. Um, and and so that, you know, in terms of what that means for the local community, the local economy, right? At a certain point, you know, maybe folks can say, oh, well, well, those people should just should just live in, in you know, Ventura or Oxnard and commute in, um, you know, and then you know that but we'll still be able to to have them work in our hotels and, and restaurants but at the point when when um, working class families can't even live anywhere in the region um economically it becomes completely unsustainable right mm -hmm. um, yeah. and in terms of kind of community integrity the 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 actual fabric of the community is being totally torn apart at that point yeah how, how do we how do we crack this because you know if you look at santa barbara there they're kind of going in a different direction in terms of building and development. They, you know, they recently changed some rules to allow incentivize developers to build apartments. The apartments are are nice. They're they're not home ownership. They're apartments, so theoretically, more people can uh, afford to live in Santa Barbara. But their market rate, you know, it's new construction. There, there's not a cap on the amount that. 
uh, a property owner can charge for rents. And they're starting to work some inclusionary into the new development. So a percentage of it would be below market, uh, basically that 80 to 120 percent. So just slightly of the median income. So they're, the, the, the city is, is doing that. They're trying to incentivize development downtown, uh, near the, the downtown central business district. We are seeing it with some projects uh, on the east side as well. Uh, is there a way to actually address this beyond the uh, you know, tenant eviction uh, or relocation assistance? Uh, what are some long-term strategies for how you can have a community where you do have rental apartment and housing options that are actually affordable? Certainly in the long run, the, the kind of the, say jobs, housing and balance is a, is a big part of it, right? I mean, Santa Barbara has, you know, about 20,000, I think, more jobs than housing units and, and a lot of those folks commute in. And, um, and so the, the, you know, the city is going to have to have, you know, more housing. I think, you know, there's there's a skepticism that 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 probably is rooted in reality that that there's almost unlimited demand to live in Santa Barbara. And it's very hard to build enough supply to ever meet, you know, this, this kind of endless, you know, demand for, for such a, such a beautiful city. Right. Um, but, but I mean, that's, that's certainly part of the long-term strategy, but I think as, as you spoke to uh, a lot of the, um, the approaches taken that are kind of, I would say market-based approaches. If, if we, you know, uh, if we incentivize more, uh, you know, more supply, more, more, you know, construction from private developers, um, then the, the market will kind of, you know, figure itself out and, you know, the invisible hand will, will do its work and, and you know, um, and rents will come down. And I, I just, I don't think we're seeing that happen. And, and what's being built as, as you've mentioned is, is largely kind of, kind of luxury apartments, um, yeah. you know, where you're, you're looking at, you know, 2000 plus, uh, dollars a month in rent. Um, and, and I think, you know, I, I, have a, I have a kind of a natural skepticism of, you know, market-based solutions. I think we, you know, for any other human right, like healthcare, education, we wouldn't see that. Like, oh, if we just deregulated everything and, you know, and, and just allowed, you know, the private, private sector to, you know, uh, build enough schools and hospitals, then, you know, then everyone in, in America would have access to healthcare and education. I just don't <laughs> think that would happen, right? Um, and, and for some reason, you know, we, you know, even, even a lot of um, folks on the, on the progressive side have kind of, you know, bought into a, a kind of myth, I think, around, around that with, with housing. Um, you know, I think the inclusionary housing is, is, you know, a big part of it. It's like, if you can at least capture some of that market investment and say, you know, at least some percent of this has to be affordable to low and moderate income folks. Uh, but even, you know, what Santa Barbara's done compared to a lot of other cities is pretty limited on inclusionary housing, right? And yeah. uh, 15% is more typical throughout uh, California. Um, Santa Barbara chose to go with 10%, um, you know, and, and not include kind of low income and just include, you know, 10% of moderate income. Um, so Santa Barbara's inclusionary housing ordinance, I would say, is one of the weaker ones in the state. Yeah. Um, and so, so there's, I think, you know, real potential for for improvement there. Um, you know, I'd also say that ultimately, you know, we need to build permanently affordable housing. Um, and Santa Barbara has an excellent housing authority, builds really great quality, you know, permanently affordable housing. Um, we've got some some great nonprofit affordable housing builders, uh, like people self help housing, um, that do a do a great job. So there's a lot of assets in the in the community. Um, and 
And what you see, I think, is those are the type of housing that when they're built, you tend to see long term, you know, working class communities, diverse communities, communities of color that are that are able to kind of live in that in that housing, as opposed to I, I just, you know, I just don't think we've actually seen play out in reality, um, kind of the this, you know, um, this market driven approach leading to housing that that, you know, working families can actually afford to, to live in, right. Um, yeah. And it's, it's helping meet some of the, I think, rising demand from, you know, uh, uh, greater presence of, you know, highly paid tech workers, you know, in the in the South Coast. Um, and and so, you know, one could say, well, this is kind of freeing up some some housing right for um, for folks, you know, in, in you know, in lower income, um, mm. you know, brackets. Right. Um, right. But but sometimes what happens is in a neighborhood that's experiencing gentrification pressures, when kind of shiny new condos or you know or apartments are are built, um, you know next to what had previously been um, you know apartments that kind of cater to uh, lower income and working class families, you know the the landlords nearby say, oh look, you know this is a kind of quote up and coming neighborhood, right? Um, you know I can I can raise my rents. Um, you know, people who might have never before considered living in that neighborhood say, oh, look, you know, I always thought this, you know, this this neighborhood was, a, you know, was a, quote, bad neighborhood or, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a bad area. But now, look, it's kind of like it's gentrifying, you know, maybe I would consider living there. And suddenly you see, you know, this kind of induced demand, right, where where mm. that that new development there in that neighborhood actually increases demand. And so kind of, you know, in its attempt to. Uh, you know, have supply meet that demand. It's it's like running on a treadmill, right? The the demand for that neighborhood actually increases, and so, right. um, so in terms of how do you how do you actually build you know permanently affordable housing? I mean, you know, we've seen very little affordable housing built in this country. You know, in in cities all across the country, not not just Santa Barbara since since the seventies, and that was kind of there was this turn against it, right? Um, right. You know, under the Nixon era, and then you know, and then subsequently under the Reagan era where where basically the you know the kind of the right said public housing is bad you know um you know it, it creates crime etc and a lot of folks i think in our community still still kind of buy into those notions even though um you know there's a lot of of data disproving that um you know and and so ultimately financing for building affordable housing has, has totally fallen off and and even worse in california since we lost redevelopment agencies uh, after the great recession that was kind of the one local source of money we had uh, to finance the construction of new affordable housing and so what, what some cities are looking to is, is local housing bonds um, where you, you can put it on the ballot um, you know uh, take out a bond that you invest in um, in your own city's housing stock build permanently affordable housing and then kind of pay it off over the long run um, you know including with the um, you know the rents from from those tenants and um, you know, it can be it can be kind of subsidized by you know federal sources, etc. Um, and so, I think that's been one of the kind of more innovative ways. Um, I think another, you know, not that kind of financing can can be used to build new housing. It can also be used to preserve existing housing. And in Santa Barbara, where the kind of like NIMBY, not in my backyard element is is very strong in local politics, um, one of the best things that you know that we can do. Uh, is actually just preserving existing affordable housing, um, and and you know we we saw this for example the the housing authority in Ventura did did this with a it was a Dario Pini building right Dario Pini is mm-hmm. as you know folks may know kind of the the most notorious uh, kind of landlord in, in Santa Barbara runs a yeah. lot of the the cheaper uh, apartments but a lot of them are really run down 
um, you know, in their kind of habitability conditions. Um, and so the, the Housing Authority of Ventura bought up one of these apartments, kind of fixed it up, and was able to maintain and keep all the tenants there, right? And, and now oh. it's permanently affordable housing, better quality, right? Um, and, and we also know now that, you know, because the Housing Authority owns it, you know, it's never at risk of, you know, some investor, like some of the investors that we've seen coming into the east side and west side of Santa Barbara, like, like um, you know, Ivy Apartments and Empire USA, um, coming and buying and flipping these buildings, right? Um, you know, that it's, it's permanently affordable and also provides some stability really to the whole neighborhood around it. Yeah, yeah that's interesting that, that yeah. that's happening in, in Ventura County, just uh, maybe some lessons, you know, Santa Barbara can learn a little bit from what's happening there in terms of being innovative and creative. Absolutely. And, you know, um, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk to you a little bit about some of the environmental justice issues that cause is working on, you know, we're dealing with COVID-19 and everybody is reeling from that. And we saw that so many of the cases in Santa Barbara County were, are in Santa Maria and, uh, much of the uh, farm worker community in Santa Maria has been impacted. And um, I imagine that's probably the case too in Ventura County. But can you talk about how COVID has impacted the farm worker community and some of the ways that cause is helping to try to uh, address that and sort of reduce the, the um, virus from spreading in those communities? Um. Yeah, so we've seen biggest biggest hotspots for for COVID nineteen um, in our region of Ventura and Santa Barbara counties um, have been in agricultural areas. Um, yeah. Santa Maria, number one. I mean, really, really ground zero um, for for a huge uh, you know COVID outbreak in that in that city. Um, Oxnard as well, um, and then some of these small towns in the Santa Clara Valley in in Ventura County, um, Santa Paula, Fillmore, that are you know have have just astonishing rates of, you know, for, for these very little towns, um, you know, of, of, uh, you know, positive testing. Um, and, and that's probably been driven by some of these major outbreaks, um, that you've seen in, uh, you know, the, the places that really advocates pointed to from the beginning, right. Are, uh, I would say one packing houses, folks are in close quarters, um, indoors, right. And we now know the virus, you know, is, is airborne in terms of how it, how it, um, often transmits, um, and so packing houses across the country have been um, been a huge disaster. Um, mm -hmm. Also kind of labor contractors, um, you know, that may transport workers, that's especially common in the citrus industry, um, labor contractors who kind of, you know, transport workers and share transportation, um, but also sometimes are not as accountable, right, than the actual owners of the of the farms themselves. Um, you know, they hire a kind of a labor contractor to, to kind of run the harvesting crews um, and they may not, you know, have as much public scrutiny or, you know, um, it can be a little more of kind of fly by night operations. Um, and then, then last, I would say the, the big thing that you've seen, um, probably the biggest outbreaks have been, um, among H2A housing. And so H2A is, uh, is our, the, the federal guest worker program for agriculture in, um, okay. in the U S it's, you know, you come on a, on a temporary visa, um, from Mexico or another country, um, you know, work for a few months. Um, and then are sent home, um, and your employer uh, basically runs your housing, food, transportation, your your immigration paperwork, everything, and so it it creates this huge power imbalance, and so is you know it's kind of a real problem there. But also because the workers are living in often very cramped um, you know shared housing, um, you know where the the federal minimum is you know 100 square feet per worker, and um, you know people are kind of living 
um, you know, in, in shared bunks, you know, often 10 people to a shower head or, you know, um, or, or toilet, right? Um, and, and it really, you know, it's, it was, it was a ticking time bomb. And so we've been kind of sounding the alarm about H2A in general. I mean, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a program that's rooted in the Bracero program that, you know, um, was kind of notorious for labor abuses, uh, you know, back in the, the United Farm Workers era, um, and was, was really ended, um, you know, by the Kennedy administration and by, um, the advocacy of Cesar Chavez and the UFW, um, but came back in the Reagan, Reagan administration, um, with kind of a little more regulations, um, as mm -hmm. H2A. Um, and was was mostly used in the South um, and a little bit in the Pacific Northwest um, until now. I mean, California, you rarely saw any H2A until the last few years. And you've seen this this boom um, explosion of, of kind of use of H2A program, especially in the crops used in the Central Coast, um, uh, lettuce, strawberries. And so Salinas, uh, Santa Maria and Oxnard have been kind of the, the hotspots for H2A in, in California. And so, you know, there was a there's a labor camp in Oxnard where, you know, essentially 200 workers, almost all, you know, tested positive, like 95%. Um, there was a, a case in Santa Maria where they had, had workers kind of bunked up in, in motels. And so often the, the these kind of H2A, um, you know, contractors uh, working for sometimes some of the biggest names in local ag agriculture, like uh, Venerabia Farms or, you know, Bonipac, as it's, as it's often known um, in Santa Maria, uh, you know, they had all these folks, you know, they'll, they'll buy up a hotel, um, have all these these folks there or kind of rent rent rooms there um, living in very close quarters. And so um, you had a ton of workers uh, who who got sick. Um, you know, it was it was kind of the, the labor contractor um, alcohol harvesting kind of kind of covered it up. Um, you know, by the time it it kind of got out there and our, our local public health department, um, you know, kind of kind of found out about it and started trying to take action. Um, there was a worker who died, uh, uh, mm -hmm. a little bit of an older worker who was um, he was uh, a driver. Um, um, so he was driving the workers from the housing to the fields every day, right? Um, and mm -hmm. so being in an enclosed space with, you know, with all of those, all those workers. Um, so, um, you know, I think, unfortunately, what often happens, I would say, in public health broadly, but I think especially when it comes to any kind of uh, marginalized group of people like farm workers, is it takes someone dying or a tragedy happening um, for for us to actually take action, you know, even though mm -hmm. folks have been kind of sounding the alarm for a long time, and so so now you know our our county is is kind of looking at you know um, looking at taking stronger measures on on H two A and employer housing, um, you know, and and uh, stronger kind of reporting requirements, um, you know, for um, for agriculture companies. Um, so we'll we'll see kind of as that debate unfolds. Um, but certainly farm workers, you know, have, have been, uh, you know, kind of lauded and, and, um, and applauded as, as essential workers, um, but, but really are kind of being, being forced to be sacrificed here, right? Um, and I think a lot of that comes to that um, a majority of agricultural workers are undocumented and undocumented workers are excluded from the safety net. So, you know, I, I, I would say that, that most farm workers are not, you know, out there working because they want to be heroes. Um, they're out there working because they literally will not be able to survive. There's no unemployment, you know, insurance. There's no stimulus, you know, for them. Um, and and so, you know, if, if you don't work, your your family doesn't eat, right? Right. Um, and so, so yeah. Unfortunately, we've seen these these major outbreaks that that then have you know um, have kind of helped spread throughout the um, you know throughout the whole community. Um, and farm workers have been been on the front lines of, of COVID-19, just as the way they've been on the front lines of, you know, wildfire in our area. 
Yeah. Well, what what can be done? I mean, if these contractors are 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 set on a style of of housing them and a way of doing business with them, is there any practical way to sort of get involved and and, and do it, uh, you know, enforcement or require masks or do anything that makes the situation any better, requiring these contractors to treat them differently? That's that's the big thing is really enforced. And we've, we've actually yeah. got some pretty good kind of guidelines of what people should do. And, and it's very complex, right, in agriculture. I mean, for example, in strawberry rows, I mean, they're they're like more, they're less than six feet apart, right? So you've got to kind of stagger workers. You know, there's, there's um, you know, obviously mask, masks are, critically important, um, but even even in um, you know, a, a place like a packing house, it's very difficult. I mean, the guidelines say, okay, you should you know, scan every worker's temperature on the way in, just like you do for a hospital. Um, you, know, you should put up these plexiglass dividers like you see in the grocery stores between workers, um, you know, and you need to make sure everyone knows about sick leave. You need to report right away if a single worker gets sick, right? Um, and so a lot of this is just not happening, or for some companies, it was kind of, you know, there was this initial surge of, of taking precautions that's kind of loosened over the, you know, as the months have gone on. Um, and, and essentially, there's, there's not really proactive enforcement um, of, of mostly, the, these, are, these are largely uh, kind of voluntary guidelines. Um, and there's, there's kind of not boots on the ground. You know, Cal OSHA really is not set up to be an agency that, I mean, they don't even do unannounced inspections. Um, they're certainly not, um, you know, uh, uh, set up or resourced to be an agency that has, has people out in the field kind of, kind of uh, looking, looking for whether, whether there are some bad actor companies who are, who are um, you know, violating those health guidelines. I think our, our local public health department can probably do a lot more. Um, certainly could be inspecting H2A housing could, um, you know, we have local land use, you know, authority, um, you know, over, over housing like that to, you know, make sure that that farmworker housing has kind of better conditions. Um, so I would say there's, there's a lot that can be done, but a lot of it comes to really, you know, getting boots on the ground and doing proactive enforcement. And there's, there's a lot of political opposition to that the agriculture industry, you know, is, is very powerful, but also I think we have this kind of myth of a, you know, of a small family farmer, um, you know, that we wouldn't want to put huge government burdens and regulation on them. And I think the reality is, and, you know, um, in California, really from, from the very beginning, we've, we've had really big industrial ag, um, you know, certainly there are also small farmers too. Um, but the, the ones who are using H2A, the ones who, you know, are operating big packing houses, um, you know, particularly where you're seeing these outbreaks are often, you know, some of the largest companies in our in our region. Um, and and so there's this there's this fear to actually do proactive enforcement. And I think it's absolutely necessary. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about you and, uh, you know, sort of your story. I, I uh, you know, it, you've been very impressive when you've speaking spoken at public meetings. And I'm just sort of curious as to kind of what your story is and how you got involved in this type of work and where you grew up and if you sort of had a um, you know some issues that you know so, some challenges growing up uh, growing up economically um, how did you decide you wanted to do this work can you tell me a little bit about your journey to where you're at right now uh, well, I was I was I was born in New York City um, spent a lot of my early childhood in, in the Bay Area and Oakland specifically um, my uh, my mom actually she was a she was a graduate student um, uh, in in ethnic studies at, at UC Berkeley and so I you know 
um, I was kind of exposed to activism and social justice issues from an early age, and it was it was kind of an interesting um, place to be in. As you know, my mom was a was a was a grad student, a, a single mom, and so you know, in some ways, you know, uh, uh, you know, during that kind of early childhood, you know, we we um, we weren't doing as as financially well. Um, you know, and we're living in Oakland. I was you know going to school with with a lot of folks who were you know dealing with with poverty, with you know mass incarceration, uh, you know, uh, et cetera. But um, but, you know, our family in a lot of ways did have more resources and that, you know, um, you know, yeah, my mom was, was, you know, in graduate school, she was, you know, ex, you know, exposed to a lot of social capital and, you know, um, and so I had a lot of privileges in terms of, you know, um, going kind of back and forth from, from, you know, you know, going to school in Oakland to, to, you know, hanging out with my mom at, you know, at this elite university campus at, at UC Berkeley. Um, we, we moved down here when my mom got a job at, at UC Santa Barbara um and uh and you know we we ended up in in ventura just partly because yeah mainly because santa barbara is so expensive right and and right. Uh, you know contrary to what some folks may think uh, uh you know a junior faculty member in the social sciences doesn't doesn't actually make a make a ton of money um but um but yeah i think you know through that also perspective i mean seeing seeing different communities right and, and seeing the difference between um you know uh the, the the poverty the the lack of educational opportunities you know uh, job opportunities that um, that exist in a community like Oakland to um, to you know more more kind of a suburban area like um, like Ventura County um, uh, you know that was that was really eye opening to me and I think you know beyond the the kind of activism that I had exposed been exposed to through you know my family being involved in in social justice you know work and uh you know in the in the bay area um you know it really really made it real for me um and i saw the difference in you know how yeah depending on these these almost arbitrary circumstances of your life you know the the neighborhood you grow up in the the school you attend um you know who who you were born to right and the education level of your parents um you know how how drastically that could affect the trajectory of your life and so um you know when um you know, when I, I went to, to, to college and, and kind of the end of high school was, you know, was in the great, great recession, saw a lot of budget cuts to, to education. I kind of got involved in, you know, in some of that, that activism, um, you know, I really wanted to ultimately after school, um, you know, I, I went to, to Berkeley for, for undergrad. Um, I, um, I wanted to come back here to the local community and, and, you know, um, uh, you know, work in this Ventura Santa Barbara County area. You know, I felt like there was, you know, there was a lot of great, great uh, social justice work being done in the Bay Area, but, um, you know, much less of that here. Um, you know, at the time, Cause was a much smaller organization and, you know, and Cause and Pueblo were two separate organizations, hadn't, hadn't merged yet. Um, and so I was I was excited about coming to work for Cause um, uh, and, and kind of, you know, be part of that uh, that work. And, and so I started as a youth organizer um, and working with high school, community college students, um, you know, around issues they were they were dealing with from um you know from education to environmental issues public transit um uh, uh, and so moved from there into the policy uh, director role at cause um policy and communications and so that's been been kind of exciting i mean it's in some ways not as not as fun as you know working uh you know at more of the grassroots level um you know directly with with the community i mean i still get that to some extent but um but yeah, it's it's always always intellectually challenging and interesting, and, and um, you know getting to work with with policymakers and media, and, um, 
Yeah. And, uh, started you, to, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Did you grow up in Did you grow up in Oxnard? Uh, no, no. I uh, so I moved to Ventura when I was uh -huh. uh, when I was thirteen. Thirteen. Okay. So, so you went to junior high and uh, Ox and uh, high school in Ventura. Then? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, um, I mean, can you talk about what your experience was like growing up in Ventura as a junior higher, as a, as a high school kid? Uh, obviously, you had been exposed to a lot of different things with your mother being a, a professor. But uh, can you talk about your experience? You know, what was it like for you? Did you were you an activist at that time or were you just kind of, a you know, you focus on your schooling or what was your sort of youth at that time? like for you I, I was up. yeah I was interested in activism and mm. you know there, there weren't a lot of opportunities to to be that involved in activism at that time I feel like um, particularly you know I mean it's not that long ago you know I'm 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 30 now um, but but certainly even just uh, you know 15 20 years ago Ventura County was I would say significantly more conservative you know um, mm. you know and I, I really remember that, you know, especially coming from, from a place like Oakland, right. It was, that was kind of, kind of jarring. Right. Um, you know, and, you know, and seeing, seeing, you know, I remember we had like a incident, uh, Ventura high school with like the, like, you know, skinhead kids like vandalized the, the track, you know, uh, field and put the fences into like a swastika and tried to, you know, burn it. Yeah. And, um, yeah. you know, and I, I remember, you know, some of the, you know, some of the debates that I think, you know, so I was uh, president of this political action and awareness club, and we didn't do a lot of action. We mostly did <laughs> did the awareness part. Um, you know, we, we did like little campus debates and I remember, you know, debates around issues that you really just wouldn't have today, you know, um, same sex marriage. Right. And, we, you know, um, you know, it's kind of a fierce debate. But but I think if you had the at the same school, you know, today, you wouldn't even see any, you know, any of the students lining up on the on the, you know, conservative side of that of that debate. Um, and so I think the 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 point that really kind of launched um, you know my involvement in activism was during the the Great Recession and the you know in the Schwarzenegger era at the end of my kind of high school uh, time um, there were these huge budget cuts proposed to education and I was um, you know spoke at some of the rallies um, you know in that school uh, mm -hmm. or you know in that school district and and everything kind of started rolling from there it was you know. Um, from there, I kind of started meeting local folks in the, you know, local Democratic Party, local, you know, uh, labor unions and, you know, activist organizations um, and coming back uh, to to kind of do internship and work here over the um, over the summers during college. Um, and so that that kind of helped me me kind of get get plugged in. But I would say, you know, three real like formative political experiences for me that happened in my kind of um young, you know, uh, young adulthood were, um, you know, the Iraq war, um, certainly I think for everyone, in my generation, that was, that was a really, you know, in kind of us foreign policy under the Bush era, um, you know, uh, a, a big wake up call, um, the, um, the big debates over immigration in 2006. And I remember going up from Ventura to Santa Barbara for the, for the huge, uh, mayday, Mayday Immigrants' Rights March in 2006, and you know, and yeah. getting to be part of that, that was, you know, it's just incredible. I mean, you know, in this area, I hadn't seen like thousands of people out on the streets before, right? Um, mm -hmm. And um, and then, of course, the the Great Recession and, and kind of crash, and you know, what that meant for the economy, what that meant for um, you know public services that were cut, um, and so I think a lot of that really shaped my understandings of social injustice and economic injustice. And 
I know you talked about your mother being very influential. When you got to Berkeley, was there was there somebody who stood out as sort of a mentor for you, or have you had have you had an experience where somebody's really sort of set you out on a on a path that's really been influential and formative for you in terms of where you're at now? Um, you know, Berkeley was great. You know, so many amazing uh, you know professors to to work with, and I got to you know take play classes with people like like Robert Reich and. Um, you know, but but interestingly, I would say some of my closest mentors actually were people, you know, back back here, um, you know, in Ventura County. Um, some of the, the folks at Cause, I think, really, you know, really took me in. And, you know, uh, uh, Maricela Morales, Marcos Vargas, um, you know, who were, who were kind of running Cause then. Cameron Yee, who was the, the research director, who I, you know, I kind of worked, worked directly under. Um, and um, yeah, I think they they really invested in me because they're you know they wanted to see young people from from this community kind of come back and you know and be involved in in social justice work. Um, you know, I, I I was definitely also involved there in the Bay Area with with um, um, with community organizations there. Um, you know, and and you know kind of social justice work in in Berkeley and Oakland and and um, you know and that was. Um, that was a, a you know great great experience for me as well. But I, I would say yeah, my some of my best best mentors were, were back here in, in Ventura County. Yeah, and you uh, you came back here, and this is where you're doing your work. So obviously, you feel a great need to give back to the community that helped make you who you are. You know, and uh, not enough people I think do that. A lot of people sort of grow up in a community, and then they're like, I'm going to go far away. And, <laughs> and that was what I thought. I mean, when I was in high school, I was like, I'm getting the hell out of here, um, <laughs> you know, and never, never looking back. And I, 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 I'm tired of living in the, in the boonies and I want to be, you know, back in the big city and, you know, um, you know, but, but I think as I got older, you know, and wanting to do social justice work and wanting to do kind of political and community work, you know, I said, well, Hey, I can be in, you know, in kind of the Bay area progressive bubble, but why do that when, when I can be in a region that's kind of demographically changing and politically changing and I can be part of that transformation. Um, from, you know, a Ventura County that was, you know, uh, you know, known like for things like the, the uh, you know, uh, the Ronald Reagan Library and, the, you know, and the Rodney King trial, right, to, um, to now being, you know, being an area that's, that's starting to have some real progressive change. And, um, and so that was, a, um, that was really exciting for me. Cool. Well, Lucas, I appreciate your time. I, uh, I really enjoyed our conversation and you enlightening me and the listeners on all the really important issues that are going on right now that are affecting the Latino community, you know, in Santa Barbara, you know, the farm worker community and all these important issues that you cause and, you know, your organization is working on. So thanks a lot for taking some time. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. Really appreciate it. And all your, yeah, really, really insightful questions. And um, yeah, looking forward to, to following the rest of this podcast. Great. And uh, listeners, you can find more podcasts like this at SantaBarbaraTalks.com. These podcasts are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you can listen to podcasts. And thanks to Kiva Cowork for sponsoring these. Thank you.